Hello, community. This is Shonda Smith-Baker from Conversations with Shonda, greeting you on this day. We witnessed a horrific school shooting, once again, talking about what we need to do about guns and gun violence in our country. As such, I thought it would be good to replay a conversation that I had with Dr. Jillian Peterson, who was a sought after national speaker, trainer, expert witness on issues related to mass shootings, mental illness, violence, crisis intervention, and violence intervention. She co-founded the Violence Project, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank dedicated to reducing violence in society through research and analysis. She has a book called The Violence Project, How to Stop Mass Shooting Epidemic that is available. I hope that you get some insights that will be useful in this time, in this conversation. You're listening to Conversations with Shonda a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. My name is Jillian Peterson. I am a recent now associate professor of criminal justice at Hamlin University and also the founder of The Violence Project, which is a nonpartisan think tank in St. Paul. So you have spent a significant amount of time doing research on mass shootings. I have, yes. So the last three years, I've been working on a big research project, um, partially funded by the U.S. Department of Justice, where we've been building a massive database of every mass shooting that occurred since 1966. And each person in that database is coded on 145 different life history variables. And then we've also been in the field actually talking to people, so conducting interviews with perpetrators of mass shootings, with their families, their parents, people who knew them, also victims and first responders. So before, because there's a whole lot in that yes. that you just said, <laughs> um, before we get there, how did you arrive at that research like that? How did you decide that's something that you wanted to research and violence was something that you wanted to attack, approach, reduce as a career choice? Good question. So I feel like I got into this line of work when I was in college. I did an internship with a woman who was a forensic social worker in Chicago. And I followed her around Cook County Jail for about six months. And she worked with a lot of people facing the death penalty and their families and really got to know a lot of the clients that she worked with. And then after I graduated, I got a job as a special investigator in New York City. So I worked on death penalty cases there, and I was the person that built kind of the psychosocial life history of that person. So if you're facing the death penalty, in New York at least, you have a guilt-innocence trial. And Mm -hmm. if you're found guilty, you go straight into your sentencing trial with the same jury. And at that point, The jury's deciding between life without the possibility of parole and the death penalty. And so my job was to build the case for the life without the possibility of parole. So it spent most of my days on Rikers Island Mm -hmm. talking to the guys that we were representing. A lot of it was building trust um, and getting to know them so they would disclose their darkest secrets. Spent a lot of time with their parents, their grandparents, their girlfriends or wives And then went way back and tried to sort of find records to figure out how they got to that point. And in that office, the saying was, the worse the crime, the worse the story. Mm -hmm. That if it was a horrific crime, you knew that you were going to find a horrific story every time. 
And while these people had done horrifically awful things, I spent three years, sometimes 10 hours a week um, with them and came to really know and care about them. And so I think people would ask me, you know, is that depressing, horrible work? And I would say no, because Mm -hmm. these are the people who have done the worst things in the world and you can still find good in them. And so that's the perspective that I brought into graduate school. I went and got my PhD in psychology and social behavior. And my focus in grad school was on mental illness and crime because everybody that we worked with had this kind of long laundry list of mental illnesses. And that being sort of my passion was understanding how mental illness is involved in crime and violence when this narrative in the media kept happening around mass shootings that it was caused by mental illness. I went and looked and you couldn't find any data about how, what percentage actually have a mental illness? What percentage actually have been to counseling? It was just kind of, we started saying it without really any concrete evidence. So, and my interest is in the life stories of people. And I also realized while we were talking about these crimes, it was like, these are just scary monster people. And the best we can do is, you know, build secure walls and train ourselves to run, hide and fight because there's nothing more we can do. And I just know that when you understand where a crime is coming from, that's when you actually start preventing it. And we had so little understanding of where people were coming from. Do you have an opinion at all? I mean, we don't have the death penalty here, but we're on the day after an execution that happened in our country. Mm -hmm. And um, do you have an opinion on that? Um, I mean, I am very against the death penalty, having done this work. Um, I also understand the death penalty, having also sat in courtrooms with victims who have lost people um, and understanding that rage and that anger and that need for kind of closure. So I feel like I get it. Um, Knowing these people and knowing their lives and knowing how many mistakes are made, I I don't personally support it. Very interesting. Cook County and then talking about mass shootings and Mm -hmm. just the patterns and do you see a connection in either the mental health, the life stories of folks that are sitting in Cook County and perpetrators of mass shootings? That's a good question. So I would say mass shootings are different, similar in the sense of worse the crime, the worse the story, I would say, similar in the sense that I feel like violence, you can always trace the roots back to kind of early childhood trauma and early exposure to violence and kind of unmet needs. And so you see that. The difference with mass shootings, it's a different population. And they are almost always suicides. Now, that being said, most people who I worked with on death row were also suicidal. Um, I think really? there's a there's a hopelessness when you commit that type of crime that you don't care what happens afterwards. Most of a lot of my work on death row was convincing people to keep fighting and not to give up because most of them were so suicidal. So I guess now that I'm talking through it, maybe they are fairly similar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would imagine yeah. like the mental health, yeah. the background yeah. stories. Yeah. Um, is it yeah. just, is it different social economic conditions or? Sometimes, but I mean, it's definitely a more white population. So the majority of mass shooters are white, but it's only around maybe 55, 60% white. A lot of them are older. Let me just stop right there. (laughs) (laughs) So I have an impression of who's doing mass shootings and who I've seen on the news. So first, can you define what a mass shooting is? Yes. So the definition we are currently using is four or more people killed 
in a public location at one time with a gun. Our next phase is we're going to bring that down to three or more killed. We're also going to start including home because domestic mass shootings are the most common form of mass shootings. They're currently not in our database, so we're currently just looking at the public ones. Okay, so if there was a shooting at a party in the neighborhood and five people got shot, is that a mass shooting? So not if it's gang-related or the majority of people killed were their family members. Interesting. Yes. Okay, so Mm -hmm. now on to my impression of who are mass shooters, which are kind of younger white men. Mm -hmm. And so you're saying that they're only 55% Mm -hmm. fall into that category? Yep, so it's 55% white, and it depends kind of what type of mass shooting we're talking about. So school mass shooters more like 80% white. College and university mass shooters are actually majority non-white. They tend to be Asian or mixed race. Um, Workplace mass shooters, it's about 50-50 African-American and white. So it kind of depends on what you're talking about. And there's two clusters. It's men in their early 20s and men in their early to mid 40s as the two clusters, which maps on to the kind of two clusters and suicides that we have in this country, men in their early 20s and early 40s. But like the people I worked with on death row in New York, they were all in their early 20s, sometimes even late teens. They were very young. Um, so mass shooters do tend to be Mostly white or, or? No, mostly black. I know. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, did, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. Okay, so what are you tracking? Mm-hmm. So... For the database, so it's 145 different things, so like literally everything. So things like basic demographics, things like about the shooting itself, who they shot, why, um, motivation, access to weapons and how they got their weapons, their childhood, their adolescence, who their parents were, if they were in crisis, why, what type of crisis that was, if they leaked their plans, things like social media use, violent video games, all the mental health variables that we could think of. So really kind of anything and everything we're trying to track. As you started tracking this, so you said that you were kind of going and you were trying to look at and and Google, I guess, and find Mm -hmm. out what research was out there. You didn't find any. So you took leadership. How do you hope the data is used for prevention? Mm -hmm. So I think without data, a lot of the conversations that we're having right now about prevention, I think are really emotional for good reason. Um, They're really fear-based and they're not based on a lot of fact. And people really dig in their heels. It's, is it mental illness or is it guns? It's which side are you on? I think we hope that the data can actually push those conversations forward. So we now have data that shows exactly how many people's lives would be saved if you enact each of these different gun policies. That's data that's it's non-debatable. It is what it is. Um, I think data doesn't have an opinion. It's not political. So you can really look and say, here's what we know about mental illness, how many of these would have been prevented if we had better mental health care. And what you see when you look at these stories is that it's not one thing. It is childhood trauma and early exposure to violence, and it is undetected mental health, and it is social media and online hate, and it is getting radicalized, and it is easy access to guns. It's all of those things. And if you pull out any one and say it's this, it just doesn't work. You can't pull out one thing. So I think trying to help people understand the complexity of this problem, but then also, in a hopeful way, all the different points that you can intervene when you think of it that way. And so it feels like from a um, systems point of view – 
if I was running a school system or I'm looking at it from a broader point of view, the data would be really useful. Do you have advice for parents or for peers in the workplace? Like, are there Mm -hmm. signs that are displayed? So the one thing we know is that when it comes to school shootings and workplace shootings is that the perpetrators are insiders. They're not outsiders. They're not bad guys you've never seen before. They are the school shooters are students of the school. Workplace shooters are employees of the workplace. And so former um, or current? Both. Mostly current. A lot of them recently fired. Okay. That's actually the kind of uh, most common trigger of fired or discipline or suspension. And so from a workplace perspective, we know that that's actually a really important moment when you're letting go of someone and to work with HR departments and how to do that in a way that doesn't push people into a crisis point or how to look for the signs before that, before you just let someone go to try to figure out kind of what's going on. We know that for students who do this in schools, they it's like 80% of them tell other people they're going to do it. We had one case where we've been working with the perpetrator. He told 60 kids and no one said anything. So we know that relationships within a school, like kids being able to trust the adults in a school to share information with them is really important. We know that adults looking for signs of a crisis in students, any sort of change in behavior and knowing how to ask hard questions and having the time and the space to do that. And then having intervention that's not punishment. We tend to punish students who threaten to do this. So if someone says, I'm going to you know, shoot up the school tomorrow, that's typically suspension, expulsion, and a lot of times criminal charges. Yeah, criminal, they call the police. Yep. If someone's suicidal and in crisis, that's only going to increase the risk that it happens um, and make things worse. So how do we say, why are you saying that? What's going on in your life that's causing you to say this? And how can we get you what you need? Yeah. For the for the 60 students that heard it or the mm-hmm. folks that see the behavior that shows up on social media or however it's showing up, yep. is there any sort of research on why they're not mm -hmm. saying it? I mean, is violence so common that people overlook it? Or do we talk about it so much in a matter of fact Mm -hmm. way? I mean, I think there's a number of reasons. One is that people don't want to overreact, right? You think, oh, they must be kidding. I don't want to be the person who reports this and then they get expelled and it was just a joke or they didn't really mean it. So I think part of it is not wanting to overreact, not wanting to take it too seriously, not wanting to get involved, not wanting to be the person that got, you know, you have to go talk to the principal and you have to. So one way to get around that is some States, Pennsylvania just mandated it for all schools are adopting anonymous reporting type systems where you can shoot a text or an app or a email that says, I'm worried about this person. I saw this without having attach your own identity to it to hopefully increase sure. kids reporting. It shows that a lot of kids don't have an adult in the school that they trust to report to. That's a whole nother topic. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I have worked in community for quite a long time and Mm -hmm. have encountered students that I thought were in the midst of a crisis and or had the potential to do dangerous things. And I have tried to take that up the ladder, if you will, or to try to find resources. It is not easy to figure it out. It's, you know, are they an immediate harm to oneself or another? Like, yep. you know, there's not like, aside from putting them on a hold in a hospital, it doesn't feel like there's an infrastructure mm-hmm. once something is reported to actually handle the report. 
Yep. Am I, please tell me I'm making that up. <laughs> no, you're right. Um, I mean, I think there's, there's a few phases to this. So, I mean, the first problem is when, when we know something is up, do a lot of people don't feel confident or don't want to get involved or don't want to be the person that sort of says, Hey, it seems like something's really wrong. I'm going to take a half hour with you and trying to figure out where you're at. And I'm going to ask if you're suicidal and ask if you're thinking about hurting people. So those kind of basic skills and crisis intervention, to me, those should be as common as CPR so that everybody knows how to have those conversations and feels prepared and confident to be able to do that. But then, and the nice thing that we know is that when someone is in a red hot crisis where they are danger of hurting themselves or others, it actually doesn't take that much to get them back to kind of not all the way back so they're fully okay, but enough so that they're kind of out of that red zone. We've talked to people who almost did school shootings, some that even went to school with the gun in their backpack and didn't do it. And it's always a connection with somebody, a human connection that kind of gets them through that moment. It's just this tiny bit of hope that gets them off the ledge. Yeah. So we know that it it sounds like this massive problem, but human connection is so powerful and that someone just saying, are you okay, can really do a lot. And then sometimes I think we underestimate the power of that. We think it has to be this huge, massive thing. But then once you get someone out of there, it's the long-term resources and that's where our system is completely lacking. And we see this across the board, just the lack of accessible, high quality, affordable mental health treatment is really problematic. So as I'm thinking about, so you said that the majority of shooters that are from the schools are in the schools. Mm -hmm. And so they're doing drills in the school, mm -hmm. that doesn't seem like that would help. It seems like mm -hmm. that would help. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> um, exactly. Yes. Right. It's almost yes. like taking a bank robber through your security exactly. system at a it's, bank. Yes, it's exactly that. And so that single fact that 91% of school mass shooters are students of the school, I think should give us all pause in what we're doing right now. Because I think what we're doing, it's not just not working. It it's might actually, yeah, it's, it's making trauma. everything worse. Yes, we know it's causing trauma. We know that if the students in the school running through this, that they're just learning the exact response of the school, which has been used to increase casualties instead of decrease it in some cases. Um, I also worry that when we start running kids through this, when they're four or five years old, um, are we actually handing out the script for this? Are we normalizing this for kids and saying, here, this is part of being a kid. This You could be killed in this school at any moment. Are we sort of implanting that idea and then asking them to act it out over and over and over and over and over again? And then we're shocked when it happens. Like you can't, we are part of distributing this script to kids. And the same thing, we spend billions, I think it's a $3 billion industry last year on school security which if they're kids in the school, they know how to get in and out of the school every day. They're going through the fancy face recognition software and everything that's being invented. If we took that $3 billion and invested it in mental health or resources or smaller class sizes, to me, that would be so much more productive in terms of school safety. But we think of safety as I need to be able to kind of physically see it when that's just not what it is. Man, do you have advice for educators and administrators on what might be a less traumatic mm -hmm. preparation? I mean, I think 
I, this is controversial, but I don't think the kids need to go through it. Um, I think every adult should be trained in the school and as much as they want to. So it's muscle memory. But we interviewed an FBI agent who spent time in all of these, at all these sites where the, at all the schools where this happens. Um, and he said, you can't train for this because it, it's different each time. And sometimes we actually trick ourselves with training to think you can, and it actually makes it worse when it happens, right? Like what you really want is strong communication, know how to communicate with each other, have a general kind of plan, but the situations are also unique. It's really hard to train for. So I would say train the staff, not the kids. Tell the kids to listen to their teachers in emergencies, and you can practice that without practicing an actual drill. You know, I have a second grader I have three young kids, but the oldest was telling me about his drill. And he said, you have to sit in the carpet in the middle of the classroom. And then I said, why do you sit in the carpet in the middle? And he said, because bullets can come in through windows um, and you have to make sure they're not jiggling the locks. And just the way that he was talking about it nonchalantly is just like in my second grade class, we have to practice if bullets come through the windows. Just that. It's like, what are we doing to this this generation of kids to grow up mm. with that worldview? You know, like the yeah. world is this scary and this dangerous and this unpredictable. And the best we can do is sit on the carpet once a month and be quiet. And what what is happening to our generation, right? Like I have I have five kids and I talk about my understanding and feeling of safety is not theirs. Yeah. Right. Like, you know. The Twin Towers, all of the social media and everything that forwards and repeats violent incidents at every level all of the time is just part of their everyday life. And I'm assuming that this is it plays into reporting and actually seeing when something is a problem. Right. When you think it's part of the fabric. Yep. I don't even know what question. Well, how does social Mm -hmm. media play in? Yeah. Um, I think social media is why we've seen this escalate. Um, really? A number of reasons, but it plays a role for like sure. Like copycat or what? Copycat. So the goal of a mass shooting, A, is a suicide, but it's a public suicide meant to be watched. It's an angry suicide meant to take people with you. And it's a way to kind of air your grievance to the world in, we call it kind of your public square. So if you're, if you want to show your workplace or if you want to show a school or if you want to show Las Vegas or if you want to show a restaurant, people pick these kind of symbolic places that represent their anger. And the more people that can watch and witness it, kind of the better from the perpetrator's perspective. And we see that. We see perpetrators checking their Facebook to make sure it's streaming. We see perpetrators making sure they're on, you know, going viral. We see people releasing these manifestos or these YouTube videos to make sure that after they die, they're watched and distributed and their message gets out there. And it does, right? Like it actually works. We do watch them. We distribute them. We create, you know, online worlds that hold them up as heroes. And so it's that ability to kind of push the message out that social media has really exacerbated. And we see that. And when one happens, there tends to be three that happen after. And that's that copycat effect of someone who's vulnerable, seeing it play out and then doing it themselves. What responsibility does the media have? Because you watch Mm -hmm. the angst, right? Like after something happens, they're like, we're not going to say the name. And then pretty soon they're saying the name. Um, You know, they start out real strong. And then pretty soon, I think it's just media pressure uh, of wanting to get it. And then they're playing it all day long. You know, who's who's working with the media on how... Yeah. And, and understanding how they're actually complicit in some ways with the at least the copycat. Yeah. Action. And this is an area that 
I've been doing some research and I actually think individual reporters are doing a much better job from what I've seen. I think there has been such a push and that a lot of media are feeling their own responsibility in this mm-hmm. and doesn't take that much to switch it to the perpetrator and not show the pictures. And I would say focusing on victims, right? Like there's ways to tell these stories without ignoring them. But uh, you haven't seen much from kind of the big media companies in terms of policy on it. Um, and part of it is it just is a way to make money. So then we have to think of ourselves as consumers. How do we refuse to look at the pictures and read the stories? And because we hold that power, how do we pressure advertisers to not be advertising on you know, platforms that are pushing this out because we know the media is playing a role in this. Yeah. To go back just a little bit to kind of what's happening in schools and the trauma. Yeah. In uh, 2018, the Minneapolis Foundation established our Fund for Safer Communities, Mm -hmm. which really came out of Parkland. We had staff that went down to Florida very quickly after that happened. And there was a group of donors and staff that were having conversations. And we established this fund really looking at how we can bring youth voice and how we can have violent reduction strategies. So not just mass shootings, not just police shootings, you know, but, you know, how do we look at all levels of violence? And what was so interesting um, for me were the students that came into leadership following that. And when um, they were in D.C., they did such a great job of sponsoring in really kids of color from across the country. Mm-hmm. And I remember them saying, like, we don't need police in schools. We don't need, you know, the bulletproof backpacks. We don't need these things. And it feels to me like the students, um, for sure, that are in these schools where this has happened and students that are experiencing violence are bringing voice and ideas and really, I don't know, the canary Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the mind saying this is actually creating damage for us. How are those voices? I know that you've interviewed a number of of young people. How are how are those voices being considered in in spaces? Mm-hmm. I don't think they are yet. Um, not at the policy level, at least. So when I think about prevention, I think of kind of three levels. There's the person that, like, what can I as an individual do? That's where I think some young people are having more of an impact, right? Like talk to people who've said, you know, if I see someone sitting alone, um, our group has just decided we're not going to let anyone sit alone, period. They're going to come over no matter who they are, what they are. We're going to, you know, and create spaces. And I think young people are so good at that, are leading the way on some of that. Um, There's at the school level or the workplace level or the church level, whatever the institution is, what can we do? What kind of policies can we have? And then there's kind of the big sort of government policy level where it's behind. It's behind the research. It's behind Mm -hmm. the student voices. It's not listening to victims. It's not listening to the data of what we know. Um, And that's where we seem to be pretty stuck. So access to guns, right? Yes. Um, Do you think that our country is ready to look at gun policy? I do. Um, I really do. I think some of the policies that our data is showing would be helpful are really not that controversial. And actually the majority of the public gun owner, not gun owner, agrees with them. So things like safe storage, that's super easy. Do we still have states that won't allow medical professionals to hand out gun locks? Do you know that? Good question. I don't know. I don't know. 
But that's an important piece of this, right? Yeah, like, cause yeah. can you get access to this? Because mm-hmm. a gun locker can cost $200, but those, you know, the little, the little <laughs> the, like trigger, yeah. trigger locks. Trigger uh, locks, yeah. yeah. Those a lot of places are handing them out, mm-hmm. but it's eighty percent of school mass shooters use guns from their parents or their grandparents, so that they're not buying guns. Um, they're using eighty percent of the school mass shooters are mm-hmm. using the guns of their parents or their grandparents. Yeah, that are laying around. And so, what law would help with that, or is that just mm-hmm. a common sense? Well, California has a law that it is illegal not to have your um, gun safely stored. So if it happens, does the, the person who the gun was coming from, do they face legal charges? Yes. Criminal charges? Yep. And there's kind of a a movement happening at the school board level. Moms Demand Action has been very involved in it, where they're pushing letters to go home to parents that just say, here's the law in this state. We're really advocating for safe storage. Here's resources where you can get these things. Just as kind of a information campaign, even. It doesn't take a law being changed. It just takes people being willing to lock up guns. Yeah. I've become more and more aware of like when my kids go to people's homes asking mm-hmm. whether or not they have guns yep. and, and whether or not they're locked up and, and stored. Is that a practice that we should be thinking about as parents? I think it is. I think it is. So there's safe storage. And then there's other things like universal background checks, right? Yeah. Most people agree with that. Our research is showing that would have actually prevented quite mm-hmm. a few of these. And then the one that I think our research supports the most is people call them red flag laws, where if someone's in danger of hurting themselves or others, the police have jurisdiction to remove their weapons for a period of time. And those, I think, are also gaining traction across the country. So I think if What is the current law on that, Jillian, now? Is it that like if they go into like a 48-hour hold, they'll take it for the 48 hours and then they get it back? Mm -hmm. Like we have, I interviewed a woman and she it was the wife of someone who did this, who went to the police station and said, I'm scared. My husband is going to hurt someone. Can you take his weapons away? And they said, we can't. We haven't. We legally cannot. You can't take away a crime because you think it might happen. You can't take away someone's weapons. This would allow it so they could. And it's just, and we know that it's useful for suicide. If someone's really suicidal, having a gun makes them very high risk. So if you can limit access to that gun, and that's typically where we've seen these laws in the past. It's on the table in Minnesota. It didn't get passed last year. The legislature, I know they're talking about it again this year. But some of these gun laws, I I think the public is ready to have these conversations that are more nuanced than the ones we've been having. And if the public is ready, what are some things that they should do to show readiness? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think contacting our officials. Mm-hmm. I think being able to engage in a more nuanced conversation around guns and gun laws where we're not digging our heels in so hard, but we can say, here's the data we have and here's some sort of small changes that would really be helpful. It is very easy to get a gun in this country and we've seen, I mean, in this database, all these people shouldn't have been able to because of criminal histories or because of psychiatric hospitalizations or things. But there's so many loopholes in the current system that a lot of this is just about closing up those loopholes and actually enforcing the laws that we even have in place. I was at a uh, a summit in at the Aspen Institute, and there was a, a session on reduction of gun violence that was global, a global discussion. Mm-hmm. And in there were um, folks from Mexico really talking about the violence in Mexico Mm -hmm. and the cartel and, you know, what they're trying to do to reduce violence. And they're saying, you know, United States, we need you to be a partner because those Mm -hmm. guns are coming from the United States. Right. And it's 
you know, we have these assumptions, and I think mine was kind of blown out of the water there to say that not only are we creating a problem in our own country, we're creating problems in other countries. Yeah, that's so interesting. I hadn't actually thought about that. Yeah. It's very true. Yeah. So, okay, so our fund for safer communities, I want to know more about mass shootings, and I also think I don't want to know more about mass shootings. <laughs> mm-hmm. So maybe before I pivot, do you are you hopeful that we're going to get a handle on this, or do you think this is something that we're all going to become proximate to in some ways? No, I'm hopeful we're going to get a handle on it. And I wouldn't have said I went into the research thinking necessarily that. I wasn't sure what I would find. In every one of these cases, it was preventable. If we would have had sort of different systems or different skills in place, um, these are not inevitable crimes. These are sort of the result of a lot of bad things happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think also when I think about crime in this country, we have waves of crime like this. So like the 70s and the 80s, it was serial killers, and we talked about them all the time. They disappeared in the 90s. There's no serial killers anymore. Um, we We figured it out. Um, we got better at tracking and also kind of the public lost interest and we shifted gears. And so there's part of this that it's the public fascination is almost driving it. That's the motivator. So how do we kind of get a handle on this Mm -hmm. from all these different layers? But I do think we will. Okay. I'm sitting here thinking like, is this podcast helping or Like, is my problem? Is (laughs) this a problem? What am I doing? Gosh, you know, I mean, it's so complicated. I mean, I obviously, I care about that. I care about spaces Mm -hmm. that I'm in. You know, we're we're getting ready to be in a conversation with faith leaders as there's been um, more violence and threats of violence in church settings. Um, And then we have, you know, just violence that appears to be growing at the street level. Mm -hmm. And we have this fund for safer communities. And as we're thinking through a couple of things, you know, one is from your perspective, do you see a role for philanthropy in this conversation um, in terms of whether or not it's around gun law or, you know, mental health um, support and resources Mm -hmm. or, you know, what role do you think philanthropy should have? Um, I think it's hugely important. I think we haven't created the right places yet for philanthropy to kind of come in. I think one thing when I talk about kind of preventing mass shootings, you talk about diffusion of benefits, right? So if you do things like anonymous reporting systems or teach people crisis intervention or create more in-house mental health services, you might prevent a mass shooting. I guarantee you will prevent things like suicidal ideation, other forms of violence, dating violence, right? Like all of those drug use. Um, It's about looking for young people in crisis and trying to think about the root of their crisis and what your school community can do for that without being so hooked on the words being used or the threat or the... Mm -hmm. um, And so I think in terms of training, in terms of resources available, in terms of even community community mental health resources that are linked with schools, right? I think there's places for philanthropy to come in there. Yeah. And I think you talked about, um, I was looking, care teams in schools. Yes. Can you say something about that? Yeah. So right now, the model that's getting a lot of attention is called threat assessment, which is the idea that when someone makes a threat of violence, we have this team to come in. The things I like about that model is it's a team of people who are dedicated to kind of figuring out what's going on. That I don't like about that model is it's, I hate the word threat and it's so focused on threat and it ends up being very law enforcement focused. So a care team would be that 
you have a team when someone says, hey, I'm worried about this person for this reason. You have a team of people with whose job it is to come together and try to figure out what's going on with that person. What we see sometimes when a school shooting happens is, you know, one teacher was concerned and the librarian was also concerned and this teacher was concerned and the school secretary was concerned, but nobody was coming together. There wasn't space or time or, you know, like systems in place to come together and all share those concerns. When you get all that information together, it's like, oh, my God, this person is in a horrific crisis. What are we going to do? So sharing information and then. Who's that person closest to? That's the right person to intervene. It's not always the person with the certain letters behind their name. It might be the janitor and it might be the secretary or it might be the shop teacher or the football coach, right? Then that's the person who needs to connect and figure out how to deliver resources in the best way. So it's about creating those teams in schools and creating – it's a shift in culture away from – you know, is this person a threat? How do we get them out to, I'm noticing this person not doing well. Part of our job is, has to be taking care of our students' mental health. So I can see so many benefits of that. Right now it's policing, suspension. Those things are happening. Uh, What about, do you have an opinion about police in schools? I think the research shows that it's not effective. I mean, just from a From a mass shooting sense, I think 50% of them, there's an armed person on the scene, so that's not deterring it. We know that it contributes to the school-to-prison pipeline. We know that once kids touch the system that they are caught in it for many times, many, many, many years. So we, we know it's problematic. I haven't seen research to show good outcomes of having police in schools. Wow. So so as we're thinking through strategies here for deployment for our fund for safer communities, Mm -hmm. do you have um, suggestions for things that you think that we ought to focus on? Hmm. If you don't, it's fine. No, it's okay. Yeah, I'm thinking. I think um, so. I think this idea of kind of trying to shift school cultures and shift school climate into these kind of positive school climates, creating these care teams, creating reporting systems, that all takes funds that schools don't usually have. It might take a week in the summer to put some of these systems in place where you need to pay people, or it might take a new position. So can Um, we just stop on it might take a week in the summer? (laughs) I'm just like, oh my gosh, right? (laughs) Like like sometimes we make Mm -hmm. something so big, right? And and what really, like a lot of this is coming down to mental health services, relationships, belonging, and hope. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it is. It is. And that's all school safety. I think we just have to start thinking of that as school safety. We think of public safety as this very separate thing that has to do with police and, you know, doors and bulletproof glass. And it's not. It's hope and love and care. And that is the best thing we can do to make our kids safe. And we're at a we're at a point in time, especially with community police relationships, where you have mm-hmm. like these abolition, abolitionists that want to like get rid of police departments. And mm-hmm. there's, you know, policy debates all over the country on whether or not we should add police to departments. We mm-hmm. have one here in Minnesota. And, you know, the argument is more cops on the street don't actually make the streets safer. And so are, are is that mm-hmm. also what you're expressing here? Yeah. You know, I do a lot of interviews with law enforcement and they they know that they're not the right people. That when kids are making threats or they, there's 
only so much they can do. I mean, the tools on their tuba are arrest, walk away, or put you on a hold. 99% of the time, none of, you know, you don't want to do any of those things. You want to do something else. You want to intervene. You want to help, but you don't want to arrest them or put them on a hold. You want to figure out kind of how to connect with resources. In some ways, I think we rely too hard on the police to solve things that, you know, when they don't have the resources to do so. So I think, the officers we talk to want schools to have these skills, want people to know how to do de-escalation, want people to know how to make connections with resources in the community without having to bring them in. Right. Please tell me you're training schools and school leaders. Mm-hmm. You are? I am. Okay. Yes. And, if, and, if, <laughs> and um, if they are interested in participating or bringing um, you in to, to advise, where, how do they, where do they go to they find you? They can go to theviolenceproject.org. That is our website. We did our first kind of pilot mass shooting violence prevention training in January. And it was the day we had a massive snowstorm. And we had no idea if anyone was going to show up, but we completely sold out. So there was over 200 people there. We had people flying from 20 different states who are all interested. It's I think right now all educators have is let's go to these security trainings, let's go to these run, hide, fight trainings to, I think, give people a different option to say, how do we prevent this? How do we think about this problem differently and train ourselves in different skills? There does seem to be an appetite for that right now. There's been a number of shootings that have happened in places where we have identified them as a hate crime or someone was being racist, such as Dylan Ruff in in South Carolina. How do we know that he wasn't just a white supremacist racist or if he actually had a mental health issue? That Mm -hmm. seems to be a debate Mm -hmm. that um, perhaps is getting in the way of politicians really leaning into this issue. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing question. I think this is where that complexity comes into play that we have to be willing to say it can be both. So in our total sample, it's about two thirds of all mass shooters, we can say had some sort of mental health history. That would be a diagnosis, um, taking psychiatric medications, going to counseling, being hospitalized. So two-thirds is a lot. But the mistake we make is then we say, okay, if you have a mental illness, everything you do in life is because you have a mental illness, right? We know that's not true. Um, you can have a diagnosis of depression and every action you take is not related to depression. Um, so two-thirds have a mental health history. When we look at how many of these were really motivated by that specific mental illness, and that typically tends to be ones that the person was actively psychotic, it's about 15%, which is much lower than the number motivated by hate. We've seen increases in the last five years in mass shootings motivated by misogyny, hatred towards women, and religious hate. Those are the two groups that are going up. We're seeing a decrease, actually, in ones motivated by psychosis. That's going down. But it's a hard question if someone, I mean, typically what we see the pathway is, it's pretty common. It's exposure to early violence, significant childhood trauma and abuse, going into developing mental health concerns, um, ostracized from peers. Often you hit a crisis point where you're now in crisis, you become actively suicidal, and then you get kind of radicalized. And this all kind of happens at once, right? The kind of crisis, suicidal, finding some people online or somewhere who are willing to validate your thinking, who are willing to hand you someone to blame. Your thinking gets very black and white, and then this ends up happening. So it's 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 messy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I don't think you can say it's because of mental illness or it's because of hatred. If that hatred wasn't there and there wasn't, you know, these groups and these places, these dark corners of the internet where you can find validation for all this really dark thinking and people saying like, yes, go do this, go do this. You know, who knows? Yeah. So many of the perpetrators are men. How does gender play into this? And maybe if you can just touch on uh, domestic violence. So it's 98% of these are men. Women don't do this. And I think the two women in the sample did it with a man. So it is something that men do. Um, when you look at all violence, it's over all murder. It's over 90% men. And we do know that some of these have a, we call it domestic spillage component, mm -hmm. which means either they killed their wife or girlfriend at home and then went and did this publicly. Or sometimes they're doing this because they know where their wife will be. So actually a num about half of work places of worship shootings are people going there because they know their wife or girlfriend will be at church on Sunday and they can have access to her. And we don't talk about that um, when we talk about sort of these church shootings. So that a lot of these have a domestic component. As we add in these new cases, the most common form of mass shootings is killing your wife or girlfriend and your their family. So I think that's a huge piece of this that we're not – it's not getting enough attention yet, but we're starting to sort of code that and look deeper into it. So there's a whole lot in how we respond to women that are in violent circumstances. Yes. And that is also an infrastructure that is growing but is insufficient to support um, the needs of, of those women, especially economically. Yes. If they're um, financially not able to move and, and have a choice. Um, are there any preventions there or interventions that you could recommend? So this is an area, it's not my area of expertise. Okay. It's one that I am just entering right okay. now as we start to look at these. So things like looking at like order of protection laws, I know there's a lot happening in terms of how those are kind of implemented and actually enforced and the resources certainly that women have to get out of relationships. It's not an area that I know a lot about, but it's one that I think I have to enter because so many of these have that component. So we've we spent time talking about some interventions that can happen in school with young people, and we know that there are adult offenders. Do you have interventions and things that we should be thinking about? I mean, do we create care teams in our offices or like, you know, what does that look like um, mm -hmm. for an adult offender? Yeah, it's. It's almost easier to intervene with kids because schools are a place where they go every day. With adults, it's harder, but we have to because so many of these are happening. It tends to be men in their 40s. And if you map the kind of rise in mass shootings that we've seen over the last decade, the worst years in record was 2019. Before that was 2018. Before that was 2017, right? We're in an upward trajectory. It really maps on to the rise in other forms of deaths of despair. So rise, we're seeing um, skyrocketing suicide numbers, highest we've ever had, drug overdoses, deaths related to alcohol, all of these kind of death of despair categories that we know we're not doing enough. So I think the question is, A, why are we despairing so much more? Like, how do you get at the root of sort of where this is coming from? People feel lonely. They feel disconnected. People don't have that person, that human connection checking in on them. And then how do we intervene with resources? Um, a lot of times, for mass shootings, when it happens, something happens. A lot of times it's a job loss. And we live in a country where we're not a big social safety net that if you lose your job and you can't provide for your family anymore, it can, mm -hmm. you know, really 
put you in a huge crisis state. So thinking about what obligation we have as a society to build things like social networks to hold people up a bit more so that things like losing a job um, doesn't make you want to end your life. Sometimes it's a relationship ending, but usually it's sort of some trigger that sends this person into a tailspin and they don't have anyone there to kind of connect with them and bring them back. Um, so anything we can do to improve community, whether that's in the workplace or in churches or in community centers or in neighborhoods, I think all the kind of same principles apply. It's just almost harder with adults. This feels like a heavy conversation. <laughs> um, do you have any... I don't know, examples of hope or things that, um, is there anything that you want to say that you haven't said? Mm. So one of my favorite stories, um, and there's the guy who told the story, his uh, TED Talks, you can watch if you want, uh, but he talks about how he was planning on doing this shooting. He was planning on going and killing people at this school. He was getting ready to do it. And he got invited over to a friend's house and the, his friend's mom had baked a blueberry pie because he was coming over. And the fact that she had baked that pie for him, that was the reason she baked it, was enough to get him through that moment. It was like, somebody cares about me this much. It's enough to get me kind of past this day. And that's the thing we know about when someone's in crisis. It's not a permanent state. It's like a really desperate moment. And I think we can all bake those blueberry pies. We can all be the person who's going to sort of ask the extra question and be willing to hear the answer. We can do that for each other. People can do it for us. I think we're losing that a bit. And so the more we can do to bring that back. Yeah. And if our listeners want to learn more about your research or if they want to support or if they want to get trained, will you remind us again on where um, they should go? Yes, so www.theviolenceproject.org. If you enjoy this show and want to learn more about what we do here at the Minneapolis Foundation, please visit us online at minneapolisfoundation.org. And of course, if you want to follow Shonda or the Minneapolis Foundation on Twitter or Instagram, that's Shonda S. Baker or MPLS Foundation. This is Sue Pak Thanks for listening.